Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Over 300 years ago, in September of 1714, Governor James Knight arrived at Fort Bourbon, Fort Bourbon en français, on the western shores of Hudson's Bay and took possession of it. He renamed it Fort York. He would live there for three years. Knight kept a daily journal during his tenure, and that document is the focus of the Champlain Society publication that will be published in the fall of 2018. The title of that book will be Life and Death by the Frozen Sea, the Fort York Journals of Hudson's Bay Company Governor James Knight, 1714 to 1717. With me to talk about Knight and his journal is Skip Ray, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of British Columbia and the editor of the new book. Professor Ray is unquestionably one of the eminent writers of the fur trade in Canada, having published a number of books, including The Illustrated History of Canada's Native Peoples, I Have Lived Here Since the World Began, and another book called Aboriginal Rights Claims and the Making of Remaking of History, and not least, Telling It to the Judge, Talking Native History to Court. Welcome to the microphone, Skip. Glad to be here. Let's start with the obvious. Who was James Knight and what is he doing on Hudson's Bay? Well, James Knight's an interesting character. He joined the Hudson's Bay Company just six years after its founding in 1676. And he joined as a carpenter and ship's rights. So he came in as a skilled tradesman and over the course of the next 38 years worked his way up through the company in various positions, including post commander, deputy governor, governor. And he also, unlike almost any other trader, in fact, unlike any other trader so far as I know, even from the period from 1700 to 1713, served on the governing committee of the company. These were investors in the company who basically managed the company. So he had London management experience as well. He also had invested in the company. And in 1713, he steps down from the governing committee and decides to come back to Canada to get back involved in the fur trade firsthand. And as to why he did that, among other things, is that he had heard rumors in London about mineral wealth in the West. And Knight was an interesting character. He knew a lot about the economics of the fur trade from the European perspective. And he thought that the fur trade at the time had a limited future. And he was actually, in some ways, I think, probably more interested in exploring the possibility of mineral developments and other lines of business. So he comes back to do the fur trade, but he also comes back to sort of help the company diversify. Now, there's a particular situation here. I mean, this is not a young man. (laughs) No, he's not. He's, in fact, uh, as far as we can guess, he was probably about 70 years old which is extraordinarily old for somebody to come back to take command of a post. This is really quite remarkable. He is based in London, is he, at that point? He's in London, and he's probably had a pretty good life because he was making a salary that put him just below sort of the gentry class. He was making 400 pounds a year, which is a lot, given that a common laborer was probably making maybe 20 pounds at that, if that. So he's a man of very good fortune. And he's a man well-connected as well, because one of the interesting things he does is the Treaty of Utrecht that ended the War of Spanish Succession. Right, this is important, yes. 
Britain and France who are at loggerheads. He's one of the guys who goes over to Utrecht to help negotiate the treaty, and he goes over with Sir Bibby Lake, who in 1714 becomes governor of the company, and he holds that position till his death. And Bibby Lake was also a deputy governor of the uh, Royal African Company, which was, uh, among other things, a slave trading company. So these are the circles that Knight's moving around in, and yet he served as a member of the governing committee. There were other well-off people, of course, on that committee. So, yes, he's in London. He is well-connected. We don't know that much about him other than what we get out of the journals, which is one of the frustrations about Knight. You kind of have to infer things to some extent from his daily journals as to who he is and what he's about. Do we know if he was married? He was married. He had a son. He left his possessions, or he willed everything to his wife. And in a cryptic comment, he said that he didn't leave anything to his son except really a pittance, because he said he'd already helped him enough in his life. But we don't know what exactly that means. <laughs> For this man to, I mean, he, he could have stayed in London and you know lived out his old age quite comfortably. Instead, he makes the decision to go back to Hudson's Bay. Now, as a result of the Treaty of Utrecht, the various forts that are on the western coast of Hudson's Bay would fall back automatically to the Hudson's Bay Company or to the British Crown? How would that work? The settlement gave the English a monopoly on trade at the bay, left the interior open. So what eventually develops out of the Treaty of Utrecht is the French begin to push inland again via the St. Lawrence Great Lakes route into the backcountry of the drainage area of Hudson's Bay. The company, on the other hand, had monopoly on the bay shore. So it took over the French possessions in the bay, which at that time was Fort Bourbon, which he renamed York Fort, and we remember as York Factory. So, yes, so he goes there with an order of the king, and there was one French trader traveling with him who apparently was a partner of the French commander of the post, who was a fellow named Nicolas Jeremy, and he comes there to sort of brings the French instructions for Jeremy to surrender the post to Knight. And it must have been kind of an interesting thing, because Knight's deputy commander is Henry Kelsey. For people who know the fur trade, is a, would be a well-known figure, because in the 1690s, Kelsey had traveled inland from that area to the Saskatchewan country, and he did traveled northward up the coast and a little bit inland into the southern Inuit territory. So he has with him another man who is almost as experienced as he is in his deputy commander, Kelsey. Now, the amusing thing about Kelsey is when Knight and Kelsey arrive at Fort Bourbon to take the surrender, Jeremy had been previously involved in French raids on that same post because the original Fort York factory was built by the English in the early 1690s and had been twice captured by the French. And in both times, Jeremy was involved and Kelsey had been captured twice. So they're a bunch of mercenaries, these guys. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking of Kelsey. It must have been kind of a perverse pleasure for him to take the final surrender from Jeremy. Although the other interesting little bit that one can speculate about, because we only have enough information to do that, is when he was a captive York Factory, or then renamed Fort Bourbon in the 1690s, Kelsey and Jeremy had one common interest. Both of them were experts in native languages. And apparently the two of them did a little bit of work together on languages, those languages. So although he probably took some pleasure in recapturing for the last time 
this fort. What would they have found there? So they arrive in Fort Bourbon in 1714. What is there there? That's a very good question because today when we hear the word fort, we imagine some kind of impregnable fortress that's there to defend against attackers. The fact is, according to Knight, when he came, he said he never saw such a disorganized mess. And the so-called fort was a pile of rotting wood. (laughs) Everything leaked. There wasn't a dry place in the place. Were people living there? Yes, Okay, but I mean, they were actively trading? This was a year They were trading with the native people. The point is, the reason that the French and the English struggled over control of the lower Hayes River, which is one of the rivers flowing into the west side of Hudson's Bay, and the other river just slightly to the north, the much bigger river is the Nelson River. These two rivers led into the interior, so they provided a gateway for native groups from the interior to come down to the bay and trade with the Europeans, the English, then the French, then the English again. And so it was strategically very important because otherwise you would have, what on earth would these people be doing there? Because what we're talking about is the location of the fort was in the middle of one of the largest marshlands in the world, which is the Hudson's Bay, James Bay Lowland. Absolutely flat. Most of the year you can hardly separate water from land. And it's not the place you would want to go and set up shop unless you had to. (laughs) and which is pretty much what the, the situation they face. It's a really harsh environment in which to try and establish a trading post. And so the man keeps a journal for three years. Now, what kind of journal is this? It was a daily journal, at least as early as the 1780s, 1680, sorry. The company asked the post commanders to keep a daily record of activities at the post The intention was that these would be done for management purposes, so they could get some idea how labor was used, the comings and goings of native people, and all this sort of information. The idea was they would be rather like, I guess, ship logs, sort of cryptic entries. Now, the nice thing about the Knight journals is some of his daily entries are like that, but Knight was more inclined, maybe it was his age, maybe it was his experience, and probably a combination of all those. He tended to write more fulsome entries than a lot of commanders. He would comment about his own feelings. He would make comments and criticisms of the governing committee in London. So some of his passages are lengthy, like occasionally two or three pages per entry. So they're almost like letter journals rather than just straight mariner's log type of journals. He wrote every day. I mean, most likely towards the end of the day, one of the last things that he would do would you know, make his daily entry because it was to be a synopsis of the day's activities. They seemed to have been done on the day. So they're first-hand accounts. And probably of all the fur trading records that are out there, and the Hudson's Bay records are immense, the daily journals have been one of the most important for people interested in Native history, environmental history, and so on, because... You get the daily rhythm, like they would record, you know, the first sighting of geese, the last sighting of geese, the right. first sighting of migratory caribou, the last sighting, the first frost, the last frost, break up, freeze up. Knight even went so far as to record the depth of permafrost in the active layer, which gives you some idea of, you know, climatic trends, because you would go there today, if it was deeper, it would indicate more thawing. If it's closer to the surface, it would indicate colder weather and happen in in-between periods. So you get all kinds of indicators of what is happening, plus the arrivals and departures of native groups who are often mentioned, and we can figure out 
whether they're Algonquian speakers, Siouan speakers, Athabascan speakers, and so on. So tell us about the indigenous people he encountered. Was there a regular calendar to this? What impression do you get as a result of reading his journal? Well, there are two groups of native people that he kind of identified them. One group he would call this country Indians. And by this country Indians, he means the native people who lived in the Hudson James Bay Lowlands near the company trading posts, in this case, York Factory. And these would be referred to in the record as the Swampy Cree, or the Cree speakers who lived in the James Bay Lowlands. Then there were the interior groups, or upland Indians, he often referred to them. These were people who lived beyond the James Bay, Hudson's Bay Lowlands. And these people came from surprising distances. Um, Here's I can tell from the journal records, we're talking about as far west as, say, the Saskatchewan River. That would put us into southern Alberta. Some groups traveled to the Peace River country. We have in the Hudson's Bay, in the York Factory journals, the first account of the Athabasca tar sands. The native people talk about this pitch along, they, they refer to it as pitch, along the rivers. And the, the year after Knight goes back to London and Kelsey assumes command of the post, one of the native emissaries that had gone to that area brought back a sample of this pitch or tar sand material. And also you get accounts of Cree groups who had raided as far northwest as probably the lower Mackenzie. You get accounts of the Coppermine River, Inuit on the Gulf area of the Coppermine River area and so on. So one thing that becomes clear is the range and distances native people were traveling. It's enormous. It's enormous. Yeah, it's, it's, it's astounding, really. And furthermore, then they bring the stories of lands even further beyond the territories that they had directly visited. So you get garbled accounts, which probably are the West Coast, Pacific Coast areas and so on. So it's quite an amazing account. Now, what you don't get, you don't get a whole lot of information about their social political life, because these are people who are coming to trade. So they're not in their own countries. They're not being observed in their own villages or any of that sort of thing. So you get pretty good information about what Native people wanted, their economic behavior, the warfare that's going on in the interior and that sort of thing. But not a whole lot about sort of social life, religious outlooks and you know, that sort of thing. What was life like over there? I mean, was he in regular contact with these Indigenous visitors? Or would they be weeks alone or in a small community? And do we know how many people actually lived there when he was there? Very, very few people lived in the immediate vicinity of his post because it's not the kind of environment that would support large people for long periods of time, except perhaps when the woodland caribou are making their migration down to the coast where they calved in the summertime. So it's a dispersed population. Now, the trading parties that came down sometimes were substantial. like could be 30 or 40 canoes. Oh, really? Wow. Multiply that by two people to maybe three. You get some idea of the size of the trading parties. And they would tend to come in, do their business, and be gone within a matter of a few days. Although in the summer of 1715, the annual supply ship from London doesn't make port. And these native traders have come down to do business, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the ship. And, and it just causes huge problems. But probably there could have been upwards of perhaps even a thousand people waiting around in the general vicinity for this trading ship to come in. Did it eventually make it? <laughs> it never comes. Oh, really? 
So instead of being supplied as he was supposed to be, he has to wait two years to be resupplied. Now that causes a whole series of problems. They literally start running out of food, running out of supplies, running out of ammunition, as do the native people. And for the local Cree, the other problem was is that that summer where all these other inland groups are hanging around for up to six weeks, which would normally they'd only be around three or four days, they depleted a lot of the food sources around the post, so the local Cree had a bad winter, third winter, because of depletion that had occurred right. with all these groups trying to live off the lowland area. Was it a fact in 1715 that no ship made it to Hudson's Bay, or did they, did Fort Severn and Fort Nelson? Did no they get ship supplied? made it to West Hudson's Bay, to York Factory, which is where night was, and it turned out that the reason that it didn't, the ship came within cannon shot distant, uh, sound of the fort, and then turned around and sailed back without ever making port. Knight didn't know that. The native people had said to him, we heard, you know, this is early September, they said they'd heard cannon shots, and Knight thought that they maybe heard thunder or lightning or whatnot, and didn't believe that that would actually happen. But it turned out that they actually had heard cannon shots. And this captain turned around and sailed back, and... I think the long and short of it was the reason he did it. I think the captain and the crew were all drunk. <laughs> That's terrible, though. I mean, what a terrible thing to happen. So, I mean, and he obviously survives for those two years. Well, this one of the things that helped him out is that when he took over the post from the French, one of the things he did is he bought the remaining French supplies. But remember, the French had been there a while, so this wasn't the beginning of their year. It was the end of their year. So, But he did get some provisions, and he did get some trade goods, and it helped him somewhat. But they were desperate. By the time the ship arrives, his third year there, it arrives early September, as it's supposed to be. By that time, they're really quite desperate because they run wow. out of just about everything. And meanwhile, of course, the indigenous traders are also anxious to receive... I mean, they've been stocking material for up to two years. Yes, and some of the native groups from the inland areas had stopped coming down to Fort Bourbon because apparently there were supply problems with the French, too. There were years when, when the French held it, their ship didn't make it port either. And the native people were making these. We're talking about groups that sometimes took them anywhere from three to four or five months to do this return trip. So sure. you're not going to go down to Hudson's Bay to trade if you're not sure that they're going to be there and have something for you. It's so major some investment. of the groups had stopped trading while the French were in control. And then when the Hudson's Bay Company takes over control, they come down again, only discover <laughs> that, whoops, nobody's here with supplies for us again. So it was a real problem. And that's one of the things, the night starts really complaining to the governing committee in London. He's quite blunt about it, that, you know, we can't build a trade unless we have a secure supply. The native people have to know if they make these trips, the stuff is here that they want. Otherwise, they're not going to take the risk. They're not going to come down. So... He gets kind of obsessive in his third journal. He keeps making certain points over and over again, so you start getting some sense of his personality. Well, tell us more about that. What what kind of man, I mean, again, what kind of man does this in his old age? What defining features of his character could you identify? I think he was driven to make a profit. He comes down, as I said, he, he, one of the re reasons he comes there is to develop new trades because he had, he had a financial incentive. He was to get 10% of any new lines of business the company developed under his command. So he had a, an incentive for that. He even, you know, when, when he finishes his command in 1770, he goes back to the Hudson's Bay Company and convinces them to co-finance with him an expedition to look for this gold that the native people had reported that existed in the Northwest. 
he comes back to search for the Northwest Passage and is shipwrecked on Marble Island, and he and his crew... Can you tell us more about that? How did this man die? Well, he dies shipwrecked on Marble Island. There's no account of that. Many years later, his ships are found in the shallow water off Marble Island, and Inuit accounts of what happened tell us that, you know, that he and Knight and his men perished there. But so he's one of the first to die looking for the Northwest Passage. But again, he was driven by this. He was really obsessed about finding out about the mineral wealth of the Northwest. And I think that was one of the things that drove him in these last three or four years. It wasn't so much the fur trade. Although he knew a lot about it, and he had ideas about how it could be improved. But I think he was obsessed with finding this reported mineral wealth. Now, of course, there was mineral wealth in the Northwest, primarily copper. Yes, it's going to take a long time. But the interesting thing about the Native people, the journals tell us about two groups of traders. One is Native and the other is European. And it's clear reading between the lines that both sides are sizing up the other. And when the Native people come down, the Knights ask him, well, is there any gold in your country or that of your neighbors? You know, they listen very carefully. And, of course, they want to give him back information that pleases him because they want to be favorably treated and so on. So they do make exaggerations about what's in the interior. So in and amongst the uh, commentaries, there are references to things that actually existed, such as copper trade, which was quite extensive in the northwest and along the Arctic coast. And there probably Native people probably were familiar with silver and maybe even gold, but of course they gave him accounts that led him to believe it was more readily available than it in fact was. So that fueled his imagination and his determination to find this stuff. So it's partly this dialogue that went back and forth between the two, each side trying to figure out what the other side wants, (laughs) and behaving and speaking accordingly. So some misdirection or misinformation is passed back and forth. So ultimately, I think that led to his death and that of his two ship's crews on Marble Island. What do you think, uh, Skip, at the end, what, what do you think is the significance of this journal? What makes it a book for the Champlain Society in 2018? Well, when I first started, I first started doing research on the Hudson's Bay Records back in 1968, which is ancient. I, I guess now, I, now in my 70s, I think that's probably why at this point I kind of relate to Knight. You're the same age as Knight. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was thinking, what would I do? I was up there at the age of 70, you know, trying to stop a training boat and all the rest of it. But back in 68, I was working on my doctoral dissertation and doing the research that eventually became my first book, which was Indians in the Fur Trade. I was pressed, you know, when as a graduate student, you don't have a lot of money to spend a leisure time doing the research. The very first journals I ever read in the Hudson's Bay Company records were the night journals. And... I was reading them specifically for information about indigenous groups in the interior, but I was aware at the time that there's so much other information in here that someday I'd like to come back to these journals, because among the journals in the... And since that time, I've read, I don't know, countless numbers of post-journals all across the country, the Western Canada anyway, for a whole variety of projects, including Native Claims. But always at the back of my mind, I thought these, among all these journals, are among the most interesting, partly because it's among our earliest journal accounts of the West, because of the range of information in there. So my background was in geography, historical geography, so there's a lot of environmental information. But in I strongly journal. suspect that what keeps you reading this man's journal is, in fact, the man's character, the, the motivations exactly. behind it. And the other thing is about post-journals, 
Uh, some readers would probably first think, well, why would you want to read daily entries? Because there's going to be a certain amount of repetition in them, and there is. But as you go through the journals, on a day-by-day basis, you do get a sense of what life was like and the daily rhythm of life, the boredom of life, the terror of life, as it were, because in these journals, they have a terrible flood in the spring of 1715 that takes off the front half of his fort, because when these rivers break up, the headwaters break up first, and the lower part of the river is still frozen, and so the ice acts as a dam, and in May of 1715, one day, night goes out and looks, and this is the thing where you appreciate him as an observer. He goes out and looks, he, he's monitoring the river because he spent a lot of time in the James Bay area at Fort Albany, so he knows the character of the river, so he's out keeping a close eye on it. He, he monitors the snow depth, he monitors the temperature conditions, and so on, because he's worrying about the nature of the flood. And before this flood has occurred, he's already moved all the trading goods into the top of the warehouse in case of a flood. But the flood, one morning he goes out, he notices the water is starting to run on top of the ice on both shores of the river. And he looks at the water and he notices, he says it's very thick, in other words, really heavily loaded with sediment. So he fires off a cannon because some of his men had gone off hunting in the marsh to warn them that a flood is coming and to get back to the fort as fast as possible. By the time they get back, the water has topped the ice because it's, the river is jammed because of the ice uh, near the mouth of the river. The water is all the way up now. It's risen probably equivalent of 20, 25 feet. It's lapping at the foot of the fort. By the time the men get back from the marsh, the water's two feet deep in the fort, and they're just setting down to a meal, and by this time the water's under the table, and they have to flee in boats away from the fort into the woods, because what's happening is not only are you having a flood, you're having these chunks of ice, he says, are seven, eight feet thick, coming with this water, and these blocks of ice are just shearing everything down. They shear down the trees, they shear off the front of the fort, they take away 20 feet of the riverbank. What a scene, what a scene. it's a total disaster. (laughs) What a scene. Well, I'm quite confident that the few things that we've been able to discuss over the last half hour will give a sense to our readers of the book that is about to come out on James Knight and his stay on the western shore of Hudson's Bay. Thank you very much, Skip, for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Skip Ray, Professor of History at the University of British Columbia and the editor of the 2018 Champlain Society volume entitled Life and Death by the Frozen Sea, the Fort York Journals of Hudson's Bay Company Governor James Knight, 1714 to 1717. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blog, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canadian history. The Champlain Society is entirely voluntary, but money is always needed to keep the lights on. Thanks for listening. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on February 9th, 2018, and produced by Pernia Jamshed and Hugh Backhurst. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company Foundation for its special support to the Champlain Society for the publication of this book on the HBC. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.